Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 173 with Leslie Oflehaven. We are talking emails today, front and center. We do a lot of email writing, but maybe not a lot of thinking about how to make that email writing all the better. So Leslie brings it, and you'll learn one, how to use the bluff technique to get more opens, reads, and replies. Two, how to use formatting optimally within emails. And then three, the method for writing a strong subject line quickly and easily. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we reference here, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep173. And while you're at Awesome At Your Job, I hope you check out some of the cool stuff we've got going for you. One thing I'd highlight here is the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course, selections of my best tips and tactics to slash through wasted time in the work week excerpted from my Enhanced Thinking Collaboration Training Programs. So I think you can dig that. You get it free to your inbox. You can sign up right there at awesomeatyourjob.com. But for now, here's Leslie's story. Leslie Oflehaven is an online writing expert who specializes in helping organizations improve the quality of customer services responses. She is a get-to-the-point writer and experienced, versatile writing instructor. As the eWrite owner since 1996, Leslie has been writing content and teaching customized writing courses for Fortune 500 companies, government agencies, and nonprofit organizations. Leslie can help the most stubborn, inexperienced, or word-phobic employees at your organization improve their writing skills so they can do their jobs better. Here's Leslie. Leslie, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, I got a real kick out of something that you shared, which was that your husband and you were born on the same day, December 3rd, that happens to also be the day I was married. So that's wild. The day, one, two, three, it shows up a lot. How do you and your husband celebrate or navigate this interesting fact you share? Well, going forward, we will celebrate it by commemorating your anniversary. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I also let you know that our best friend or my best friend is also born on December 3rd. So for a long time, we've celebrated our birthday by having my best friend's husband prepare us a beautiful meal. And he's a wonderful cook. One time he made homemade lobster stuffed ravioli. So three of us were dining on our birthday and one friend was just working really hard. But things are gloomy for us because those friends are moving to California. So we'll have to develop a new tradition. That's tricky. Is it worth moving right along with them to keep the ravioli going? Yes, I think it is. They're moving, they're moving to Sonoma County, so I think there'll be great wine with the ravioli now. <laughs> oh, it sounds breathtaking. I'm imagining the scenery as well. Right, right. <laughs> well, in, I am intrigued to dig into your wisdom here. You've got a whole course about writing emails, which is, I think, fantastic because we do it all the time, but I don't know how many folks really have invested the time, thought, energy to invest in enriching that skill 
though it seems like something that we probably should. Probably like typing too. We do a lot of that until I guess the robot speech transcription is up and running. So could you maybe orient us first and foremost when it comes to thinking about emails as a communication channel, when is it right to use email versus are we using email too much? Uh, Yes, I think we probably are using email too much. And I think every day when we come in and open our emails and look at our inboxes and our shoulders just slump and we don't feel like reading and we don't feel like writing. We know that everyone else is using email too much too. But I think you're asking me a more specific question than that one. You're asking, I think, when is it right to use email and when is it not right to use email? Right. So I have a couple of answers to that. So email is great when you have to continue something that already has momentum. So if you and a colleague are working on a project, it's great to use email to confirm deadlines because the project has its own momentum or to list out tasks because you've probably discussed those already and email is a good way to keep things going. Email is not such a good way to overcome resistance. In fact, It's a pretty bad way to overcome resistance. So if you have a topic you need to communicate with someone about and you know they're not going to like it, uh, they don't agree (laughs) with you, (laughs) they don't want to do that, then email is not going to work as well. It's just not so good for overcoming resistance. It's not good for changing people's minds, even if they don't disagree with you, if they just have another idea. Email is not very good for changing people's minds. And email is really not good when you're walking on eggshells with the person you're writing to. If the situation is fraught or if the topic needs to be handled very sensitively, email is not the best channel to choose. Oh, that's interesting. It seems like you're touching upon an implication that's coming up again and again with guests, which is all of this requires a measure of courage because those are maybe the exact times where folks might want to shy away from a direct head-to-head, face-to-face exchange and carefully craft their statements, you know, for the eggshells and to cover some matters that may be contentious. And you're saying, no, no, this is precisely the time to not email. Yes, I am saying that. And and I realize that it's I'm giving advice that some people will just not take, but at least I want to think about it this way. It's rarely a case where you have to choose an in-person meeting or a telephone call or an email, that you can't do both. Lots of times you can do both. It's a false idea that either I will email you or we'll meet about this, but we won't do both. You can easily do both. I agree with you. People do wimp out and choose email when they have difficult things to say because it's just a little bit less personal. But when they do that, they kind of poke a hole in the bucket of goodwill you need to get along with the people you work with. A little bit of the goodwill drains out when your colleague receives an email from you at 4.59 asking if you can move a deadline up three days. You know, you can do it. Yep, you can click send. It's possible to do it. But it's really not a very good idea in the long run. So culturally, I think people in the workplace are far less interested in using the phone now than they were 10 years ago or even five years ago. But I think we really still need to remember that some channel that is 
synchronous where we're in it at the same time, even if it's a video call, that we should remember we should use those personal channels, more personal than email, to handle or set lay the groundwork for a follow-up by email. All right. Understood. And so I'm now thinking a little bit about, you mentioned you wanted it to use email to continue something, but not so much to start something. So if you're rolling out a big, cool initiative or introduction, you'd say it would be best to get folks assembled or to convey that in a more live or synchronous fashion first. Yes, I agree with that. Mm -hmm. And I know it's not always possible to do a conference call. And boy, they have their own baggage, don't they? Mm -hmm. Some conference calls are horrible. But it's another example that it's not an either or. You can do a short conference call if you can't get everyone in the same time zone. Do two or three short conference calls to start something, to kick off it up with email about the logistics, about the responsibilities, about the schedule, that kind of thing. But you can't build enthusiasm very well via email. Okay, very good. Understood. Thank you. So well, now let's talk about when it does come to email. So we're going there. Uh, you've got a couple perspectives in terms of, you know, not being robotic. So, you know, what can you share with us about kind of that game to try to convey a degree of warmth while also having that, you know, consistency, fairness, professionalism, and, and other stuff that we think about coming from a written modality? Sure. I think there are parts of the email, physical parts of the email, that your readers expect to be a little bit more personal and other parts of the email that your readers might not mind if they're copied and pasted. And we usually expect emails to be more personal at the start and at the finish. So Hmm. maybe the middle of the email is a copy and paste from your FAQs or it has some data in it from a report. You didn't actually handcraft that for that email, but you should handcraft in a personal way the opening and the closing. And so the pattern, it's like almost like a conversation. We greet each other personally at the start. The middle maybe of a phone conversation or an in-person conversation may be ideas we've shared with others, but we're sharing with a new person here. And then we wrap up in a personal way. That's how we should build our emails also. So for the folks who are listening who who may think, hey, I'm too busy to start my email by writing Dear Fred, or I'm too busy to end my email by writing something like looking forward to seeing you on Thursday. No, you're not too busy. (laughs) You should take the time to invest in some personal writing in the physical places in the email where your reader expects them. Oh, and thank you. As you share this, that gets me thinking about my own email practice. And I think I do a pretty good job with the opener. Like, hey, how's everything going, Arthur? Episode six with imperative and purpose and making it happen. That's great. And it's like, oh, I wonder if you could introduce me to this person. And so then it is kind of formal. Here's the story about this person, their context and why I think they would be a great fit. And I'd love to be connected. And I think I probably dropped the ball as you lay this out on the closing side is just like, hey, thanks so much for your help is probably what I default to. And you gave a nice example of you looking forward to seeing you next Thursday, but sometimes I'm not seeing them 
<laughs> so could you maybe give us some even word for word scripts of some great stuff to include personally at the end of an email, maybe when you don't actually see that person that often? Sure. I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying thanks for your help. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And it's polite and it's friendly. So, you know, now you don't be too hard on yourself okay, about that. Thank you, but, there, <laughs> but there are other things you can say. I like a technique of closing by restating the action I'm hoping for out of the email. So in the example you gave, let's say you're asking someone named Fred to introduce you to someone named Sue. You could end your email, thanks for your help. I'm looking forward to connecting with Sue, mm-hmm. right? So that you're reaffirming what's coming up. The reason that you wrote, you're reaffirming it at the end. You put a little sugar in there, thanks for your help. And then you restated your hoped for outcome. That's what I like to do at the end. So I could say I'm looking forward to speaking with you on Thursday, or I could say I'm looking forward to reviewing that PowerPoint if you've asked the person to send you a PowerPoint that she used in a presentation. Or thanks for your help. I do need those brochures this week. You know, something like this. You take the chance because you have the reader's attention at the end. People often scan the beginning and then hop down to the end. They're looking for a to-do item. But we're not going to slip into that pattern. We're not saving the to-do item for the end. No way. But we can put a little bit of sugar at the end so that the closing is personal. Readers really like it when the email comes across as written for them and them only. Yes. So if you end it, um, thanks for your help. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's gracious and it's cool. All right. And... As you share some of those closer examples, sometimes I've critiqued my own emails because if you say, looking forward to you know connecting with this person, sometimes I criticize myself like, oh, that's kind of presumptuous, Pete. You just assume they're going to say yes and comply with your request. How do you think about that one? Well, I can see why you'd be cautious. That just shows that you you know words have power and you don't want them to have power for evil. You want them to have good power. But remember, no little phrase at the end of an email exists in a vacuum. It exists shoulder to shoulder with all the other things you wrote in the email. So if your email was really presumptuous all along, if Uh, you're like, hi, I want to meet her. She could really advance my career. I don't know you very well, but I know you can help me get to meet this other person I do care about. Then the end of your email will sound presumptuous. But if you've done your homework for the person you're actually emailing and you've explained why you'd like to be given the gift of this connection, then at the end, you're just reaffirming what you want, not trying to get over. Oh, that's good. That's good. And sometimes I'll include in there, it's like, hey, thanks so much for considering this request. You know, can just give a little emphasis that I'm not presuming that they're going to say yes, but that by having opened it and begun reading this email, they're de facto considering it. And that in and of itself is a gift. That's a good turn of phrase there, the gift of that introduction. Thank you. Certainly. Well, so then I've got many questions, but let's kind of maybe just go with, you talked about some of that rapport in the opening and closing. Are there any other pieces we should bear in mind when it comes to some of the rapport, some of the empathy, some of the personal, emotional stuff of the message? Yes. Just number one, you should do the work to create rapport and you should do the work to 
show empathy. It's odd to me how willing people are to monitor their own tone and their own use of words when they're talking to each other so that they don't give offense and so that they show how the other person thinks. We're quite willing to do this when we talk to each other. But for some reason, maybe it's just because we're overwhelmed by email, we seem to think we don't have to do it there. You know, people tell me when I do workshops on writing email, they ask me, now, how should I handle it when somebody writes me an email and says, thanks? And they're all angry. <laughs> so, well, you don't really have to do anything there, but you might want to check your attitude. Why are you angry that yeah. someone wrote you an email that says, thanks? Well, they're angry because their inboxes are too full and it's wearing them out and they can't complete the tasks they need to complete from their inbox. And so they're getting cranky. But I, I guess I just want to remind people that rapport is kind of non-specific feeling of goodwill. And if you don't do the work to build this feeling of connection via email, then it won't be there when you need it. So rapport is that goodwill, that magnetism that we have for our colleagues that we draw on when we need help. And so, you know, the example I gave earlier, you need your colleague to finish a project three days earlier than she thought she was supposed to. You better have built some rapport there. You yes. better have it because you're going to make a rapport withdrawal from the bank. So in your emails, you should use the same social courtesies and the awareness of other people that you would use if you were talking to them. When you walk down the corridor at work and you're heading toward the break room to get some coffee and you pass your colleague, you say, hey, how was your weekend? You don't actually always care, you know, <laughs> but you say it because that's how people treat each other. And I'm not saying you need to write, hey, how was your weekend in your email, but you have to realize that if you're not talking to that person, if you're emailing instead you need to take the measures that feel natural to you to build the closeness. All right. Thank you. And you know, it's funny. I've noticed a trend in emails that I've been getting lately. I don't know if it's just me or more and more people seem to be saying happy day of the week, like happy Thursday. And <laughs> it's so funny because in a way it's like, that is completely not original or clever or custom to me, but nonetheless, it makes me feel good. It's like, yeah, you know, why not celebrate Thursday for being Thursday? You know, I actually appreciate it. Kind of like the, how was your weekend? Yeah, of course you do. And, you know, maybe you think it's kind of dorky that the person writes happy Thursday or happy hump day or whatever crazy thing they say on Wednesday. And it probably is a little bit dorky, but you, you give them props for the effort. <laughs> they made the effort. So it comes across as pleasant, as charming. And it's important. There's no right word or wrong word to use to build rapport. Even if you do it in kind of a clunky way or it's kind of an awkward way, as long as the effort is there, the words will sound fine. They'll have the effect they're meant to have. All right. Well, and so now I want to talk a little bit about the results, you know, the outcome of a given email. I'd love to get your take on sort of top tips for maximizing the odds that your email will get, you know, opened, read, attended to, you know, replied or complied with in the request. What are the keys that make it happen? Okay, I'm going to do this one quickly and in a bossy fashion. All right. Num number one, 
you have to have a useful subject line. The subject line is your first and best chance to prepare your reader to behave properly. And you notice I didn't say the subject line is the best way to get your reader's attention, because if that were the case, we would write things like your blood test results are in, you know, like <laughs> spammers. Right? But the subject line is your first chance to prepare your reader to respond properly. The next thing you must do to improve the chances that your reader will do what you've asked or actually read through the email is use the first two or three lines to write what I and other people call a bluff statement. Bluff stands for bottom line up front. So if you're asking for something, you start with the request and give the reason for the request later. If you're updating a project plan, you give a summary of the update right away. The main point, whatever you want to say, goes at the very beginning. You give the bottom line. You know, people forget where that idiom comes from, bottom line up front. It comes from the world of accounting. It comes from a ledger. So if you can picture the numbers three plus three plus one stacked up in the ledger, then you have the bottom line, then you have the number seven. And this writing principle says, please, in email, tell your reader seven. Don't tell your reader three plus three plus one equals seven in the email. Write a great subject line and then start with the bottom line. Start with what it adds up to right away. And now is that after the friendly opener sentence? Yes, a little bit of sugar, a quarter teaspoon of sugar, (laughs) yes. So it might say, let's say you have a problem and a solution, okay? You're writing an email to your boss who wants to recruit unpaid interns for summer work. But you know that unless we pay these interns, We're not going to attract the candidates we want. We're going to get some kind of halfway good candidates for this internship. You want a paid internship. So you could write a whole paragraph about the problem of unpaid internship. And then you could follow with a paragraph about why we should pay our interns. And then I'm saying that's the wrong order. Give the solution first. You can elaborate on it later if you'd like, but give the solution first in your bluff paragraph, put the bottom line up front. So it would sound like this. It would say, dear Susan, thanks for giving me the background on our internship program for the last five years. I've done my research and I'm certain that an unpaid internship won't attract the candidates we need. We need to pay for interns this summer, but I think $2,000 for the full summer will be enough. All right. That's the first paragraph. I did it in three sentences. Got it. Thank you. You gave us a few rules. Are there more to get the reply and results you're looking for? I'll add one more rule, one more writing behavior that I think is really important. Many, many people read their work emails on a mobile device now. So that pairing of a very clear subject line followed by a very short and message-oriented bluff paragraph at the beginning. That pairing is really important. There's one other thing you can do for multi-paragraph emails, and that is put a heading above each section so the reader, the recipient, can scan the email first before reading it fully. That's convenient on a mobile device, and it's convenient on every other device that people read emails on. So you might use, if you have a two-paragraph email, of course, you don't need headings in it. But if you have three paragraphs, you have four paragraphs, really think about 
adding headings, bolded titles for each section, so the reader can see what's there. It's kind of a it enables the recipient to do a visual inventory and then read the sections of the email as needed. All right. Now for these headings, boy, my bane, action, implication, slide headlines are coming through. I'm thinking, should that heading ideally be the core idea of the paragraph in one sentence or a label such as timeline? Well, my preference is that it would be the core idea of the paragraph instead of just one label. Because let's say, if giving, taking the example you just gave, timeline, let's say you've just written a paragraph that says the timeline is unreasonable. <laughs> if we stick to this timeline, we won't be able to do the user testing we should do before we give this product to the client, Okay. So if you just write timeline, then the reader knows, hey, he discussed the timeline in this section. But if you write timeline seems unreasonable or timeline will cause problems or timeline needs to be extended, whatever, any of those three, then the reader gets the message and can dip into the paragraph as needed. It's perverse but true that the nicest thing someone can say to you is, you structured your email so well, I did not have to read every single word. <laughs> All right. Perverse, but true. Hashtag it. Sounds like a backhanded compliment, but it's actually high praise. If you have a bluff paragraph and a clear subject line and headings within a multi-paragraph email, your recipient may be able to skip around. Maybe she already knows the timeline is too ambitious. And so just seeing that you wrote the timeline is too ambitious or the timeline is unreasonable, she's like, mm-hmm, yeah, I know. I don't actually have to read that paragraph. All right. Well, so you talk about bolding of headers there. I'd love to talk fonts, formatting, italics, colors. Oh, my. What are your thoughts in this realm? Okay, now I want you to picture a very mean-faced, scoldy person with an index finger up. I'm about to lay a scolding Oh, down. scold us. Yeah, here we go. Black text, white background, no shading, no clip art, Hmm. no scripture quotes, no animations, no fun colors, clean, easy to read, sans serif font, you know, nothing curly, nothing artful. Reading email is a tiresome task, so you do everything possible you can do to make it clean, streamlined, and easy to see. Black on white. Very little use of bold italics, and never use underline unless you're hyperlinking. Hyperlinking has taken underlining. Even if your organization's style is not to underline hyperlinks, maybe they're just bold or something, still... Most people interpret an underlined word as possibly clickable. So you don't want to use underlining anymore. I would wish I could cite this research properly. So I'm going to probably misquote it here. But there is some usability research that shows that people can understand the intent of two font effects easily and three or four or five, they kind of lose their way. So here's an example. Let's say you're writing an email about who's going to do what after a meeting. You're sorting out the tasks after a meeting. You could use bold for each person's name. You could use italics 
before the deadline for their task. And after that, you should stop using font effects because the people who read the email will get it. Ah, bold is for the person who's doing it. Italics is for the deadline for that task. But if you add color also, then the fact that you have three font effects starts to diminish the power of the other two. And the recipient will be kind of like, hmm, that's a lot of formatting. <laughs> but it's, it's not as concrete an understanding of what the formatting means. Okay, understood. And so quick follow-ups here, sans serif font. So if you're reading a book, most books have a serif font. You say we want to be friendly to the eyeball and the serif kind of draws the eyes across for paragraphs to rock and roll there. But you're saying sans serif is the way to go for an email. Yes, because emails are more tiresome, tiring and tiresome to read than anything in print. You know, when you read an email, no matter how large or small the device is, it's emitting light. And a device that emits light is just harder to read than print ever will be. And as you know, if you're reading on a mobile device, even if the individual letters are the same size, as, same size font as they would have been on a much larger device, you're seeing so much less information at a time. So the online, the sans serif fonts are just more streamlined and they're more modern looking. I would just stick with those. They're easier to read online. Well, now let's unleash a ferocious debate amongst the world. All right, Ariel, Verdana, Helvetica, what's best? Is there studies? Is there research on this? You know, I really don't know. And my sense is that it really doesn't matter. And I think that if it's black on white and it's large enough, I really don't think it matters much. It's when someone is being coy and they're going with Dutch blue on a dove gray background that's the problem. I would just react as a reader. If it's difficult to read for any reason, I'm not going to take it in as well. I'm not going to understand it. I may open it, close it, plan to get back to it and just not do so. All right. And so for size, 10 point, 12 point, 14 point, are they all good? <laughs> I would go with 12 or larger. 12 right. or larger. Yeah, it does depend on the font. You know, what looks big in one font at 14 looks, you know, really big in another font. So it depends on the font and it depends on how middle-aged you are. All right. <laughs> I'm profoundly middle-aged. <laughs> well, I mean, you could probably go too high. I mean, if you're rocking 36, it's a little bit like, what? Yeah. yeah. All right. So now, this question is the bane of a number of folks' existence. I know I'm not the only one and I'm not going insane here because a, a few people have confirmed that this is some messed up stuff. All right, let's talk. We got Gmail. Let's say you're typing something into Gmail. You maybe you do some copy pasting from other sources into the Gmail. The Gmail looks totally normal and fine. But then when it's read on a client like an Outlook or an Apple Mail, there's wildly inconsistent formatting on the receiver side. It looks kind of busted and unprofessional. And frankly, I feel deceived and lied to by Gmail, which mm -hmm. I love in so many respects. But this one messes with me. Leslie, do you have the holy grail for you? Do you know what I'm talking about? And do you know the answer? I do know what you're talking about. I don't have the holy grail oh. for you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I love Gmail second, not first. So 
my own personal Gmail is like a swamp of ancient emails in the, I refer my email to Gmail. I don't read it there first or write it there first, but you know, I think it's a big difference if you're writing to people you know, then I would just go with plain text. If, you know, plain text email looks perfectly fine if the purpose is not marketing. You know, plain text is perfectly fine, especially if you're composing for plain text. You know it's it's not that you had to resort to plain text because HTML wasn't working, but that you composed in plain text looks perfectly fine. If you're writing marketing emails and you just like Gmail, get yourself straight. I need to make this good looking email with an image header and a background color and these other things work, then you probably need to go to constant contact or MailChimp or something that will make sure that what you send looks groovy no matter where it goes. I hear you. I guess what gets me is the Gmail looks like it's all normal and cool. You're like, okay, great. But in fact, it's not. It's like they're hiding something from me in the compose stage. And I've heard some people, they they just... get all of it in a standard font written elsewhere on Word or Google Docs or something. And they like, you know, triple click it. Okay, Verdana 12, Verdana 12. Oh no. <laughs> and then copy paste it, the whole thing with zero edits in order to ensure that this happens. So I'm surprised that this is still an issue. I've spent more than one hour deep in the Google product forums try to get to the bottom of it. And apparently it's been an issue for years. Maybe in 2018, this will be old news. And they'll say, what are they even talking about? Yeah, I hope so. It sounds really bad. I don't have firsthand experience with that, as I said, because I'm mostly sending from Outlook, staying in there as I just stay in Outlook. Yeah. Okay. And well, tell me, Leslie, is there anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we hear about your favorite things? Okay. Well, in my favorite things, I'm going to tell you how to write a great subject line. I have a method, as you can imagine. So that's what I'm going to tell you. So I guess just to extend the theme, if you could turn on a timer and notice how much time you spend writing email, you would stop wondering whether it's worth doing it really well. Mm -hmm. It takes up much of your workday. You know, when I'm offering a workshop, I ask, Participants, how much time do you spend writing and reading emails? Sometimes they snort and go, the whole day. Mm-hmm. You know, so if it's a task that's taking up a lot of your work time, then you need to up your game. <laughs> All right. I'm sold. <laughs> Good. Great. And so you said your quote was a method, or that's just the quote right there? Is you No, no. Oh, no. I'm going to give you a method All right, right now. let's take it. Okay. Here we go. So if you want to write a great subject line, here's a method. Here's a way to try. Write your email first. You're going to write your subject line last. Okay. Okay. So you write your email first. And when you finished writing your email, you ask yourself a question. What is this email? What have I written here? And you'll come up with a noun as the answer. So if you've written to ask someone for something, then your email is a request. If you wrote that email that I laid out before, you're telling your boss that we should pay this summer intern, we should not try to recruit an unpaid intern this summer, then your email is a suggestion or a recommendation. If you need to 
find some equipment that should be in the warehouse, but you can't find it, you might ask someone a question. The email is a question. Where is that equipment? I can't find it in the warehouse. So whatever is the correct word to describe the email you've written, use it as the first word in your subject line. Because what will happen is your choice of word right there will help your reader know whether she has to do something, even before she opens the email. So if you write a subject line that is request for budget figures for 2019, then the recipient knows she needs to send you something. You started with the word request. That cues the person who receives your email, I need to fulfill this request. Some first words won't require the recipient to do something. For example, if you use the word announcement. So you could say announcement about visiting scholar in our university department. The recipient may not have to do anything. And the word announcement tells her that I can read this email later this afternoon because I don't have to do anything in response to it. So if you choose that word correctly, it does all the work it needs to do to get the recipient to predict how much work your email will be. Does she need to do something? Does she need to read the email now? Can she read it later? Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. And how about a favorite study? One of the favorite studies, um, I feel like this study has been done over and over and over again, but there is a 2016 version of this study, and I'll just highlight the findings. It was a 2016 study by two uh, psychology professors at Chatham University in Pittsburgh, and it was about people's inability to interpret emotion in email very well at all. And this study has been done in one form or another for about 15 years, to my knowledge, maybe even 20 years. In the study I'm discussing right now, they had uh, study subjects compose an email, identify the emotions in the email, and then they asked the study subjects, how well do you think a friend will be able to interpret the emotion in this email and how well do you think a stranger would be able to interpret the emotion in this email and this study found that people were quite confident friends could interpret the emotion in the email a little less confident that strangers could and the outcome was neither friends nor strangers interpreted the emotion well at all so it's all kinds of scary because the sender the person who wrote the email thought hey my friends understand me They'll get my feeling or my joke or my worry. And that didn't happen. And the people who read the, what they, the sender predicted didn't happen. And the recipients didn't get the emotions correct either. So that's just to reaffirm a study like this has been done over and over and over again. The email is really poor at conveying emotion that the writer's often exaggerate how accurately their emotions will come through. They predict that they'll come through accurately when those emotions won't. All that to say, be very careful that your emotions in email are uncomplicated and that you do the work to build emotional connections outside of email. Okay, thank you. And how about a favorite book? I really love the book, Letting Go of the Words, but it's more about digital writing and not about email specifically. So that's a heartfelt and somewhat random recommendation. <laughs> the book is called Letting Go of the Words, and it's by Jimmy Reddish. Okay. And how about a favorite tool, something that you use often? 
It's a humble little tool called spell check. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> and a favorite habit or personal practice? Writing the subject line last is one of my favorite habits or personal practice. And also letting an email rest, you know, soldiering on getting a draft and then putting it in the draft section and letting it rest for a little while before I send it. Lots of times I clear up my writing challenges by moving around. So if I take a walk, my dog is always really tired when I have a lot of difficult writing challenges. If I take a walk, I'll come back refreshed. And so pausing between composing the email and sending it will really help me do a better job. All right. And do you have a favorite nugget, a piece that you share that tends to really resonate with folks? Yes, I think that helping people figure out what their bottom line upfront statement is and putting it at the beginning of their email, put your main point out there. It requires confidence, but confident writing gets great results. Okay, thank you. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? Oh, you can find me online. You can join me over on Twitter. I'm Leslie O. L-E-S-L-I-E-O. I would really like if you would come to my website. That's eWriteOnline.com. We are a 21-year-old company, so this idea that helping people learn to write better email is going out of style. I don't think so. It's kind of like selling groceries. The need does not go away. So please come see us online at eWriteOnline.com or on Twitter. Oh, perfect. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Yes, I do have a final call to action for those seeking to be better at writing email. Okay. This is my last call to action. If you want to be a better email writer, you're avid about this, then I suggest you make your own little Smithsonian Museum of emails other people have written that you really admire. One of the most practical things we can do to improve our writing is to read more critically. Try and figure out how did he do that? That was a great email. How did he do it? Or you could say she wrote a great email about a difficult subject no one wanted to hear about. How did she do it? So get a folder And when you come across a well-written email that you think, I wish I had written that one, save it. Make a collection of kind of other people's greatest hits so you'll have it to return to and you can model your own writing on theirs. All right. Perfect. Leslie, this has been so much fun. Uh, (laughs) I think that we have synergized our dorks and... (laughs) the inner dork and good things emerge. So thanks so much for taking this time. I wish you lots of luck in your training and uh, many good emails coming your way. Thank you so much, Pete. And I know that when I'm giving my husband a big hug on December 3rd and saying happy birthday to him, I'll also be saying and happy wedding anniversary to Pete and the missus. Oh, shucks. <laughs> Thank you. Much appreciated. Okay. <laughs> thanks very much. I really love the point about bottom line up front and taking the extra time to think through what's the key message, what could I say in one sentence, and then bolding it, and then offering the detail underneath. I've been doing that more and more lately. It's been so handy. So again, if you'd like to check out the show notes, the transcript, or the links to items referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep173. And I hope you'll push subscribe so you'll hear from our next guest. It's Bill Sheeman. He's talking about being fulfilled in your work. His book has an exclamation point in it, so I feel the need to say fulfilled when I mention it. 
And so I hope that you enjoy that and I'll catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 